If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn in it to Acts chapter 13. We're continuing our sequential exposition of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And we have come to Acts chapter 13, when Barnabas and Saul are finally set off on what we call the first missionary journey. Let's pray together, and then we'll continue in that text. Tri triune God, you alone are God. We thank you for revealing yourself through God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is a perfect manifestation and representation of who you are to mankind. We thank you for giving us your completed word in your holy scriptures, for our instruction so that we can know you and know how we can follow Jesus. We pray this morning that as we look into the, the pattern set in the lives of these first missionaries, that you will help us to be able to differentiate between uh, things that are descriptive and things which we can take away as prescriptive for us to follow. And we pray, Father, that you will not allow one soul to leave this place without being convicted of the truth of who you are and what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the author Luke now is laying out what would, be, what would become the pattern of these missionary endeavors. We have the very beginning, and it already begins to set out uh, uh, patterns that are emerging from this new missions effort. So as we look at them, we'll be asking, what can we learn from these patterns to apply to our lives as we pursue faithfulness to be Christ's people? People who are set apart to him and sent as his witnesses in every walk of life. Read with me in Acts chapter 4, or Acts, sorry, Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island of, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and un unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished 
at the teaching of the Lord. The missionary endeavor of Barnabas and Saul, Paul, is marked by several things. I'm going to point out to you seven things this morning. This missionary endeavor is marked by geographical movement in order to reach new people. It's marked by the guidance and power of the Spirit. It's marked by the proclamation and progress of the Word. It is marked by teamwork that's strong and unified, even in the midst of their diversity. It's marked by intentionality, being faithful. Faithfulness requires purposeful planning. It's marked by ongoing opposition to Christ and his people, their efforts to proclaim him and see people submit to him. And finally, it's marked by the power of the Spirit and the effectiveness of the Word to transform lives. So I'm going to begin tracing these. As we go through, I'll I'll kind of follow either a combination of logical order or the, the order they kind of show up in the verses here. So perhaps the most obvious one is that this missionary endeavor is marked by geographical movement in order to reach new people with the message of Christ. So I have a map for you. This, this image is credit to the ESV study Bible, and it will just help you get your bearing a little bit in the eastern Mediterranean there. So uh, below that region of Syria, which is where Antioch is located, there's Phoenicia along the coast and then down into Palestine where Judea is. You can maybe see from a distance there that Jerusalem is near the bottom of our map. Um, and the map also shows that they leave from Antioch, and they travel to the port city of Seleucia, and then they sail to Cyprus on the eastern side. Then they travel by land through the island of Cyprus and come to Paphos. After this passage, we'll hear of them leaving and heading north again by sea to come to the region of, of Perga. They'll head, head north again to Pisidian Antioch and back east through uh, southern Galatia. So if it's helpful to you, it is always helpful to me to get my bearings um, on a map there. Now, um, what can we learn from a ministry marked by geographical movement in order to reach new people with the gospel? We must have people who are willing to uproot their lives and move to another part of the planet for the purpose of preaching Christ and seeing thriving churches planted. Some of you are those people. Some of you know those people. Some of you may still become those people. In order to do this, we can can also cooperate and coordinate with like-minded missionary endeavors. And I'll describe what I think like-minded missionary endeavors are organizations and and other churches that are gospel-centered, Bible-saturated, disciple-making, and church-planting ministries. Churches that are driven or ministries that are driven by and focused on being gospel-centered, Bible-saturated, disciple-making, church-planting ministries. And then we're comfortable to, to function together in ministry and to make sure that we know we're on the same page, not only in terms of the gospel and and the way we submit to the authority of God's word, but even with a similar methodology for missions efforts. So besides the super obvious geographical movement of their ministry, we're going to go through these kind of quickly, 
At verse 4, we hear immediately that they were sent out from the Antioch church by the Holy Spirit. What can we learn from a ministry marked by the guidance and power of the Spirit? Which in this description includes the, the support of the local church. The Holy Spirit was confirming what God had for Barnabas and Saul, and he, he used the local church to pray and listen to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and that was confirmed in Acts chapter 12, verses, chapter 12, 25 through 13, 3. And then again, we hear reiterated in verse 4 that they were ultimately being sent out by the Spirit, not just by Antioch as their sending church. And we should probably take care not to make too little of this, because it seems to be the entire point of the book of Acts. Christ continuing his work by his Spirit present with and in his people. God the Holy Spirit is both the guide and the power. Not only are we set apart by the Spirit to be in Christ and sent out to be witnesses by the Spirit's guidance, but God's people are literally empowered for service and for proclamation by the Spirit of God in us. And we'll hear again in verse 9 that this response to Elymas comes about precisely because Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. If you've been following us in our study of Acts, how many times have we heard Luke, from Luke that these instruments and messengers from God are filled with the Spirit, that they're controlled by the Spirit? We've heard this again and again and again. If it's not the, the key theme of the book of Acts, it is at least a key theme of this theological narrative. So what can we learn from a ministry that is marked by the guidance and power of the Spirit? Well, we can learn, first of all, that this is not our ministry. I know that seems obvious and easy, but it's not so obvious and easy when you are so invested in an endeavor. You might accidentally begin to take control. You might begin to try to build a mini kingdom for yourself instead of recognizing that this is all for Christ and about Christ, and it is the Spirit's work. We'll come back to this again as a part of our last point before we leave the text this morning. We should also have no doubt that this team prays together for clear direction. Again, together praying together. Just as the team of leaders in the whole body at the Antioch church had done, so too this missionary team would continue to seek to be sensitive and submissive to the Spirit's guidance. And that would come through prayer and confirmation of the team. Just as Acts also emphasizes the primacy of the ministry of, of God the Holy Spirit then, whom God the Son has sent to be with us and in us, so too Acts emphasizes that this ministry is word-centered. That is, it's a ministry of proclaiming that God has revealed himself through Jesus Christ as the pinnacle fulfillment of his promises. So this ministry of the word is grounded in the scriptures, and it's focused especially on Jesus being the Messiah of Israel and Savior of the world. 
So what can we learn from a ministry marked by the proclamation and progress of the word? With this particular emphasis on the good news of fulfillment in Jesus Christ and a necessary response of repentance and faith and submission to him as Lord. Luke, ha- Luke can, I'm going to show you in Acts again just how this ministry is described as being word-centered and the progress and the, and the purpose is the word going forward. Luke can summarize the advancement of the gospel in the lives of new people in new places like this, Acts chapter 12, verse 24, that we just saw in recent weeks. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And that is a description of the gospel penetrating people's lives so that they submit in faith to Jesus as Lord. Similar language was used earlier to describe the ongoing effectiveness of gospel preaching and the Spirit's work in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and even a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And as evidence to support this claim that it is the word of God centered on Christ in, particularly, in, in particular, we only need to look back uh, uh, to the previous chapter at Acts chapter 5, verse 42, and we see Luke writing, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Or we can look even ahead from the text, go back to Acts chapter 13 and look ahead to the next section where we have an example, a pattern of the kind of message that Paul would preach when they came into the synagogues of the Jews when they arrived in a new city. We have this example of the message he would He would review the history of what God was doing through his people Israel, and he would quote some scriptures, and then he would make sure that he pointed to this. An example is Acts 13, 23, of this man's offspring, meaning David, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And then from there, Paul and Barnabas will also always witness to Gentiles who are not a part of, they're, not, they're neither Jews nor proselytes to Judaism, and they witness to those as well. So what can we learn from a ministry that is focused on the word, on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let me ask another question. What have we to say other than what God has said? What have we to say other than what God has said? That's why we are people of the word. We submit to the inerrancy and the authority of God's completed scriptures with the Lord Jesus Christ as the center of that word. Christ Jesus is the point, the pinnacle, the hinge, if you will, the fulcrum. All scripture leads to him and from him. So like Paul and Barnabas and company, like the early church, we aim to to have a ministry here locally, or when we send people out, we aim to have a ministry marked by the guidance and power of the Spirit and marked by, pro- by the proclamation and progress of the Word of God that Jesus is Lord. And now, too, what can we learn from a ministry marked by teamwork that is strong in its unity and diversity? Did you hear in the text that 
they went down to Seleucia. They sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed. So we know this is the group being spoken of. This is a team. And this team, you can, I believe you can, without working too hard, read between the lines to notice that this is a team that's strong in its unity, even within diversity. As we said, it's clear that this is a team, and every team takes shape with varying roles and responsibilities, according to ability and gifting, according to maturity, according to an established order. Sometimes we appoint someone to be a leader in a certain way. But this is especially the case in a team of Jesus' disciples in ministry together. So we're not surprised to find that John Mark and other apprentices who come after him have a role of assisting the primary leaders. As they learn, they're assisting. For in, in John Mark's case, for example, I can think that there would have been logistics to handle as they travel, especially as they travel across Cyprus on foot and they're traveling light. Where will they stay and what will they eat? It doesn't take much imagination here to presume that in these places where they're preaching the word of Christ in the cities and towns of Cyprus, that, that some people are coming to faith in Jesus. So maybe John Mark could have assisted in organizing the baptisms for these new converts to faith in Christ. The passage also demonstrates a natural shift, or I'll say also a supernatural shift if we're talking about the gifting of the Holy Spirit, which is uh, the supernatural work of God. But there's a, a natural shift from Barnabas to Paul as the point man on this team. Almost in passing, Luke transitions from referring to Saul by his Jewish name to calling him Paul, his Roman name, which goes along with the, the shift to their intentional outreach to, or their intentional outreach among the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Luke won't call him Saul again in Acts except places where Paul's giving his own testimony to other times, and he quotes Jesus saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The rest of the time, Luke will call him Paul. So there's definitely a shift here. It also corresponds to Paul seeming to become the primary speaker, the voice of the team. But that doesn't mean Barnabas becomes an unnecessary appendage. I believe Barnabas to be the elder statesman on the team, continuing to encourage, continuing to mentor Paul, planning alongside him, teaching alongside him. Plus, we know that there would need to be communication and coordination with believers already present in some of the places that they visited. Do you remember in Acts, we know that some of the believers that were spread by persecution had passed through Cyrene and had passed through Cyprus, and they took the gospel to Antioch. We know that there probably are some believers there, so there's communication and coordination to be done with those believers. There's also, we know from the, the pattern of Barnabas and Paul, that they would make an effort to establish some leaders among the believers before they leave. So much work to be done, and they can divide up responsibilities and even share responsibilities, unified in their diversity. What we can see then is that even with differing roles and responsibilities, and even with a shift in who was the out front vocal leader, this team was still unified in spirit and in mission. 
as I promised, we keep moving quickly. So next, what can we plan from a ministry marked by intentional and purposeful planning? I think it's pretty clear that they had a system. No doubt they had to be flexible within that system. We'll hear of times when the Holy Spirit, in fact, gives Paul guidance and changes his plans. But they have a plan, they're flexible with it, but their ministry is marked by this purposeful planning. We kind of find this balance in the Christian life of being marked by prayer and sensitivity to the Spirit's leading in accordance with God's word, but faithfulness requires purposeful planning. I've told you before that I always think of, when I think of faithfulness that undoubtedly came from purposeful planning, I always think of Joseph and Daniel. Their faithfulness was planned, even regimented. (laughs) In fact, Joseph continued to be recognized as useful to Pharaoh because of his excellence in planning. And so we submit to the Spirit, but we also make every effort we can by the power of God at work in us to be purposeful in our planning. One example of this in our text is they proclaimed the word of God first in the synagogues of the Jews, which would become a common pattern when they entered new cities. There are at least a couple of reasons why this makes sense. The synagogues would have been a natural place for them to gain a first hearing because of their own Jewish heritage. They enter a new city. It's a natural place to find people gathered. And not only that, these people who are gathered, they already believe in the Jewish scriptures, and they also believe that those Jewish scriptures are the authoritative word of the one true God. It's a natural place for them to begin. Not only that, though, you can also think of it like on with a negative aspect in the sense that if, if they went to the Gentiles first in a new city, the Jews probably wouldn't be likely to listen to them. So they begin with the Jews first and then spread the gospel to the Gentiles as well. Another way that they're purposeful and intentional is in their movements, which we sort of talked about already, but they, they arrive on one side of Cyprus, they make their way to the other side, passing, the text says, passing through the whole island giving indication that they almost certainly stopped other places along the way to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. They would have taken a route that allowed them to stop at population centers to reach new people. So this team plainly trusts the Lord and leans on the Spirit, but they don't blindly and ignorantly blaze ahead, blaze onward without intentionality and planning. Or we might say, I I think I mentioned this last week, there are some aspects of the difficulty of cross-cultural missions around the globe today that are a young man's and young woman's game. Places that are hard to reach that will take a uniqueness of, I I jokingly said, a little bit of, you know, youthful, blissful ignorance. (laughs) I don't know how hard it is. But because of that, we have to do extra work. If we're going to send some of us who are very young out into the mission field, we have to do extra work to train so that we're not blazing ahead ignorantly, not knowing what we're doing, not being people who are trusted to plant a church, to lead a church, to plant new elders so that you can move on to another ministry. 
So we work hard in planning, and you can see why, even as a local church, not even just a small local church like ours, but large local churches, why we partner together with other entities who excel in different forms of training and equipping us, preparing us to be ready for ministries that God has given. I mentioned last week that if you're even the slightest bit interested in missions, some of you came to me immediately afterwards because you know you're excited about missions. If you're even the slightest bit interested, talk to us so we can pray with you and see what God has for you as you spend time with us and serve with us and grow up in your adult Christian faith. Now, I'm finally coming to the most detailed part of the passage. You maybe thought I wasn't going to make it, which gives us indication that Luke chooses, as he's, he's telling this theological narrative, he chooses episodes to either relate common trends, common themes that we're talking about, or kind of unique things. So there's a unique thing that happens on Cyprus, and Luke tells us about this episode important, that highlights important people and events. So when they reach Paphos, the, the seat of Roman government in Cyprus, we have, like I said, a common pattern, which is opposition to ministry. We're going to talk about that first, but then also a couple of un, uncommon people and a unique confrontation and a unique result. First, what can we learn from a ministry marked by ongoing opposition to Christ? When I say opposition to Christ, Christian, you need to be reminded to hear opposition to Christ's people. And opposition to Christ's message is still primarily opposition to Christ himself. It's not you. If they hate you, Jesus says, because they hated him first. Their problem is Christ. Their problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're just a vessel, an avenue, a conduit for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what we see in our text is a character named Elemas. When you, when you meet Elemas, I think you're probably reminded of Simon the sorcerer that Peter faced in Samaria, which is one of several intentional parallels between the ministries of Peter and Paul. But this magician, this sorcerer in Paphos on Cyprus is first Jewish. His name is Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of Joshua. The name that we say Jesus is, is the, name, the same name, Joshua. So we're, of course, not talking about, the, we're not referencing the Jesus that Paul and Barnabas are trying to proclaim, but Bar-Jesus is his Jewish name. He's son of Joshua, and this Elemas is a false prophet, meaning that he twists the word of God for his own purposes. Out of Paul's mouth, he describes it like this, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And... Elemas is highly influential with the proconsul, the highest-ranking Roman official on the island of Cyprus. His job, the proconsul, would have been to govern this region, and Elemas apparently has his ear. Now, Sergius Paulus, another important character, he chose to summon Paul and Barnabas and Saul to hear. He wanted to hear the word of God, and I think, although this we're moving quickly, and it's not said specifically, but I think this is no doubt because he had heard of their effective teaching already in Paphos. 
and that there are likely others coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he summons them to hear this teaching. But the false prophet, Elymas, opposes them, deliberately trying to convince the proconsul not to listen to them about the faith. Usually when we hear the term faith, it's not just about him responding and saving faith, but when we say the faith, we mean the, the collective teaching that Jesus is Lord, he's the fulfillment of scriptures, and the collective teaching about how we follow him if we come to faith in him. And so this Elymas is trying to convince the proconsul not to listen to what he is apparently intrigued by. And it says that he's intelligent. I don't, I don't think the intelligence is saying that he's more inclined to listen to the gospel because of that, just that he is an intelligent man. Now, when Elymas tries to, to put a stop to this, Saul, who was also called Paul, had a dramatic change. ba 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 and simple Saul becomes superhero Paul. No, not really. This is just a simple matter-of-fact transition from using his Jewish name to using his Roman name, which makes sense that he might have even introduced himself as such in this context. Isn't he talking to a Roman leader? The proconsul is the governor over all of Cyprus. He probably referred to himself as Paul. And now the ministry, his ministry continues to spread even more broadly in the Gentile world. It makes sense that we now talk about him by his Roman name. What's really interesting is if you consider someone reading this letter that, or this narrative that Luke has written, if someone among the, the, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ or they're connected to the church, imagine them reading up to this point. And they're like, Paul, oh, we know Paul. That Saul was Paul? Wow, that's cool. Maybe they're making this connection for the first time. Not so with us. We're pretty used to it. We call him the Apostle Paul. But, but the text says, Paul was being controlled by the Spirit, and he hit the nail on the head with Elymas. You son of the devil. By the way, I don't recommend you talk to people this way. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? The source of his sorcery is unveiled. The great adversary is the source of his sorcery, which makes him an enemy of all righteousness, because righteousness is of God. And his true character, his selfish motivations, brought right out in the open. Why would he want to put a stop to this? Because it would likely cause his influence with the proconsul to be lost. Sergius Paulus doesn't want to listen to me anymore. So he wants to keep his grip, his selfish motivations. This is one of the few times like Ananias and Sapphira, that a miracle is for judgment. The hand of the Lord is upon him. And so it acts as a warning to others as well when these do come up in the book of Acts. Elymas is struck blind for a time, unable to see the sun, just as Paul says, and he's forced to, to grope around and ask for help to be guided by the hand. This isn't like someone who has come to understand what it's like 
to be blind. Either they were born blind or they lost their sight and they've, they've now, they're learning to cope and, and deal with it in, in a different way. They're used to it. No, he's not used to this at all. He is suddenly blind. The mist comes on him, darkness falls, and he cannot see. And so it's proven that he's groping around, asking for people to lead him by the hand. He thought he was the wise magi, the wise leader. But even Satan's power is no match for the Spirit of God. So what can we learn from the fact that there's ongoing opposition to Christ? We accept that there will be opposition, and we prepare our hearts and our minds to abide in Christ. Where will you turn? Where, how are you sustained? How do you not lose focus when you're pressed? How do you not lose focus on, I only say these things, I only teach these things, this is what God has said. You abide in Christ. You stay close to his word. You keep relying on the spirit to sustain and to guide. We also see that we're gonna encounter those who are using religion falsely as a means of personal gain. Sometimes it's so close to us in the evangelical church that it's confusing, possibly for the less mature, and it's hurtful. We wish that we could say, please stop using Jesus' name. We encounter those who seem to wield a great deal of worldly power and influence, even evil power and influence. But again, they are no match for God, either now or in the future. We can trust that God knows when and how he will judge them. And we can trust God to care for us in his way and in his timing. And finally, we don't preemptively presume rejection of the gospel. In spite of a pattern of Jewish opposition, they would enter the synagogues first again and again. And there is a pattern of Jewish rejection continuing, even in the ministry of the apostles. And one might think that these pagan false God-worshipping Romans would be the last to trust in Christ. We don't presume rejection. We just faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that leads to our final point in the last part of the passage, coming around full circle. What can we learn from a ministry marked by the power of the Spirit and effectiveness of the Word of God to transform lives? If you hang around us very much at Branson Bible Church, you're going to know that we don't believe that you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior because you're so great. You're so good. You were so intellectual. You were so impressive. No, but by the grace of God and the regeneration of the Spirit of God, you responded in faith to Jesus Christ. God transformed your life. Is he still doing that? He is still doing that. And so you can go with confidence and proclaim the gospel to other people knowing that God transforms people's lives. And I'll remind you that in our evangelism, sometimes, I, especially if you grow up in the church like I did, some of us, we're kind of by guilt when we know we're really bad. 
at turning conversations to God and sharing Jesus Christ with people. And I want to encourage you that praying for people is the beginning of your evangelism. Pray for specific people. That is the beginning of your evangelism. And then there has to come a point where we open our mouths, right? We open our mouths. I remember Pastor Rich teaching in the past about this difficulty that we have sometimes of, of proclaiming Christ. And he says, at some point, you just do it. <laughs> and you know what I've observed about those who are very effective in evangelism? They've done it a lot. And so the pattern becomes easier for them. I want to recommend something to you. We have a couple of people in our church family who, who were doing this, and I'm sure they'd be greatly encouraged if you want to come with them. So Eric Palazzi and Carrie Ann Thomas have made trips, not together, separately, um, made trips down to the landing. They take people with them, their children, other people, to, to practice witnessing, not just to practice, but to actually witness. But what I, what I want to say to you is that if you will do that, it takes so much courage to just off the cuff, cold, talk to a complete stranger and present Christ. If we will do that, the reason I encourage you to do that is because if you do that, it's so much easier to talk to your neighbor <laughs> and your coworker and your classmate, right? It's so much easier to do. So God is in the business of transforming people's lives. Sergius Paulus saw the powerful reinforcement of the teaching that was already astonishing him, and he believed he submitted to Jesus as Lord. So in the spirit, I may not strike anybody blind today or any day. But I want to encourage you that God is pleased to use the least of his people because he can. God loves doing that. Just keep reading the Bible. You'll see that God loves to use the least of these. And the Bible says specifically because it gives him glory and we don't get credit So these brothers would leave this island to reach out to others with a, a full wind in their sails because God had graciously given them some success in their ministry. Let's pray as the praise team comes again. Father, by your grace and for your glory, grant us, your people, some success. Cause us to bear rich fruit, not for our glory, but for the sake of your own great name. Amen. While it's clear that we should invest ourselves fully and be purposeful and intentional, we don't trust in ourselves, but in God. We rely on God's guidance and power through his spirit. We rely on God's means of proclaiming Christ from the word, and we keep God himself as our aim. That's a pattern we should aim to follow and a pattern we should teach others to follow.